Hello and welcome to Nurturing Resilience. I'm Leisha Nelson. This is a podcast for cultivating connection, belonging, and safety through stories of triumph and post-traumatic growth, sprinkled with a little bit of magic. I am so glad you have joined me. Let's dive into today's podcast. I am so glad to have you guys here today. Today marks the beginning of interviewing others on my podcast, and I could not be more delighted than to interview this guest who has asked that her real name not be used. She has lived a difficult life, as you'll find out in our interview. When I met her, I had asked her if she was sharing her story in any way, and when she said no, it really got me thinking. It is what essentially motivated me to launch this podcast from an idea into life. It was after meeting her and listening to some of her story that I knew I needed to get her story out into the world. I really feel like her story can help some of you out there who might be experiencing some similar things. This podcast comes with some trigger warnings. Her story is not an easy one. We are going to be talking about the LDS faith, and so those of you that are practicing that faith, please listen with some caution and curiosity. Her story is one of deep religious trauma. We are going to be talking about sexual abuse, emotional abuse, drugs, masturbation, and anorexia. So if any of these subjects are difficult to listen to, please be forewarned and listen with caution. I also want to give a shout out to my own mother who listened to my first podcast and after listening said, you need to let listeners know you're not a therapist. So in honor of my mother, I am not a clinical psychologist, but rather I'm an occupational therapist, craniosacral therapist, and somatic practitioner. I have also been certified as a yoga teacher, an integral facilitator, family constellations facilitator, and emotional clearing I have been working with the body and the nervous system, trauma recovery for over a decade. Starting this podcast was a way for me to bring all of this work together and offer a different perspective of healing outside of the traditional medical model. Also to note, I recorded this podcast live in my kitchen. Because of that, you're going to be hearing some background noise. We were eating chocolate and there's very minimal editing. She was sitting a little bit away from me, making it hard to hear sometimes, or her voice might sound like it's in the distance. So my apologies for that, as I'm learning how to best record everything, especially live. There's definitely a learning curve to starting podcasts. Very last, I want to mention that after much contemplation, I decided to separate her story into two different podcast episodes. She has experienced so much, and we ended up talking for over two hours in order to tell her whole story. After going back and listening to it, I really did hear two different stories. So today, I'm sharing with you her first part of the story, which goes into depth in her childhood and teenage years. So let's get started.
Where do you want to start your story? Well, I think the beginning would be adoption. Mm, um, that's great. Yeah. So I was adopted. My my adoptive parents, who I go by and say my parents, but my adoptive parents were not able to have children. So they did adopt all of us. Um, and I think it was a good thing, mainly because my birth parents were so young. They were 16 years old. So, I mean, there was no way that they could possibly have raised me. Um, but I also think there's a dark side to adoption. It can really cause a lot of hurt. Um, but yeah, I was adopted. Um, a lot of my adoption story I didn't hear until I met my birth mother when I was in seventh grade. And then again, after I met my birth father, that's when her, my birth mother's story came out and when I really put the pieces together of generational trauma. And that wasn't until I was about 20. Wow. So it was 20 when you put together the pieces of the generational trauma. Yeah. That's when I saw it because I met my birth father and was like, wow, you're a horrible human. And then I asked my birth mom, cause we had a relationship and I was like, what is wrong with this fucking man? He's yeah. horrible. Yeah. <laughs> what happened? And then she unloaded and told me she didn't want me to know until I had met him and could see for myself what type of person that he was, mm. which is so helpful. And I love that she did that. Yeah. You could make up your mind for yourself. Yeah. It wasn't like she was putting suggestions in my head, Yeah, which was nice. So you were adopted. Were you the first adopted child of your family? Nope. I was number three. Number three. The first two, my adoptive parents did go through like LDS family services and then they closed down. And so then with me and my younger sibling, we they did a private adoption, but it was open. Okay. And just for some of our listeners, I know that you and I both reside in a very predominant LDS area, mm -hmm. but some people listening to this might not know what that means. So what does LDS, like, can you take us into what that is? <laughs> a little, with some love. <laughs> yeah, oh, love. Okay. Religious trauma. Mm -hmm. um, so with LDS people, <clears throat> sorry, I do know that it's so important for them to have families because that's your only role as a woman mm -hmm. is to be a wife and a mother. And that's all you are. To raise children. Yes. And, and just quickly, LDS stands for... Latter-day Saints. Also known Mormons. as the Mormons. <laughs> Love them. <laughs> and so those, most of you know that I also was raised Mormon. Um, and stopped going to church when I was about 12, but I was definitely considered LDS and raised within that faith. And my family is still currently, a large majority of my family still practices Mormonism, Mormonism and is in that faith. So, so the mom, really, the role of the mother is to have children, be the mother, the yeah. traditional, let's say traditional mother, yes. like take care of the mm -hmm. home, don't work outside the home, have lots of children. Mm -hmm. That's our role here on this planet. And marketing fun, but yes. <laughs> okay. So you're the third. I am. And I think the fact that my adoptive parents were not able to have kids caused trauma. Mm. And so they were doing everything that they could to have a family yeah. because that was her only role. Yeah. Um, so I understand why they wanted kids so bad. I just see it as an issue as it puts a lot of pressure on the kids, too. Mm. Say more in what way. It was more like we were supposed to be the perfect example. Mm. And a lot of times my siblings did fall in line. 
it was just me, the weirdo, that I don't listen mm-hmm. and I talk back and I am absolutely not going to be a stay-at-home mother and I want a wife. <laughs> and I just wanted things that I was not supposed to want. Mm. And I literally am so sassy. And I was very sassy as a child growing up. <laughs> I tore the, all that poor community didn't know what they were getting themselves into when I started church. <laughs> yeah. So here comes, you have like <laughs> this very traditional LDS family. They're working their best to um, follow the traditions of the faith and adopt children so that they can contribute in the way that Mormons do to this world. And, you know, and also I'm sure there's just like a lot of women have the instinctual drive to have children and build a family. And here you come, already the black sheep. Oh, yeah. I was born the black sheep. I came <laughs> out of my birth mom a feminist, I swear. Yeah. Like, and there's no way to know that, right? Like your adopted mother, there's no way to know this. No. 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 So you're starting <laughs> to get raised in the faith, and here's sassy little you. Yep. And, and, then, and then what? So I was about seven, almost eight, and at that point you're supposed to get baptized. And me being very inquisitive, I was constantly asking questions because even as a little kid, I was seeing the plot holes in their faith, mm-hmm. and it didn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, like, they wanted me to get baptized, but I was really curious as to why. And they told me, well, because your sins are all washed away. But in the same sentence, they had told me that you can't sin until you're eight. So I was like, so there's no point. Yeah. That's cool. So I don't want to get baptized. Like, then there's literally no point to this. And yeah. I told my parents that. And it was like the reigns of Castamere, if you've watched Game of Thrones. It's mm-hmm. like, they, it was this huge deal. And they actually stopped speaking to me for two full weeks. When you I, were seven? I was seven. Wow. That's a lot for a seven-year-old. Yeah. Um... They, I had to get myself up for school. I had to make sure that I was fed. I learned how to use a stove. I learned how to do things that I shouldn't have had to do. I made sure my homework was done. I made sure that I did all my chores. I made sure that I was taken care of because they ignored me and acted like I wasn't even there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my older sibling, she was so emotionally abusive. Um, from a very young age, she would tell me, she prayed on my abandonment fear from being adopted, and she would just tell me that they didn't love me, they didn't want me. She'd stand me in front of the mirror, look at me, and say, look at yourself. And she'd pick out, like, your belly sticks out too much, that's really mm-hmm. fat. Look at your nose, it's really ugly. I have really curly hair, and she was just like, ew, that's not a thing. Like, you need to straighten that out, it's gross. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when my parents stopped speaking to me for those two weeks, it was, they're giving you away. And so I was seven and a half and terrified that I was going to be put in foster care. Yeah. So I was mentally preparing myself and deciding what to take with me when I mm. left to go find a new family. Um, wow. And you knew at the time you were adopted. I did. It, it was very open in your family yeah. that you guys were adopted. And so this concept of like, I'm going to have to change families wasn't something you were just making up. It's It was a truth for your inner seven-year-old. It was. It yeah. was. And then having that, you know, my sister say it, and then realizing, you know, like, wow, they really won't talk to me. Like, yeah, they could easily be trying to find a new family for me right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just terrified. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know where I was going to end up. I had no safety. I was trying to 
figure out how to make sure I was a good student because as well, I was like, well, I want my new family to love me. Yeah. Um, so I want to make sure that I have great grades. I want to make sure that I look pretty. I, I know to how to sure. cook. Yep. I know how to take care of myself. Right. I can take care of your kids if you need me to. It was like Anna Green Gables, you know? Right. I was like thinking of her and like, well, she would take care of their kids. Maybe that's how I get them to want me, you know? Well, and such an imprint of fawning. It's like, do you know what fawning is? I don't. Okay, so for you and for our listeners, fawning is where we essentially, like a baby deer, a fawn, we might do things that our higher self or the part of us that knows that we're completely loved wouldn't necessarily do. And it's, of course, for a seven-year-old, like there's not that insight or they're not of the knowledge to not fawn. So fawning kind of falls in that category of freezing, but we're not quite frozen. We still have actions, but the actions that we're doing are the actions that are seeking love. So you might not want to behave that way, but you're behaving that way so that you can be loved. Right. And so there's, as a child, this gets imprinted into your system of love looks like taking care of myself. Love looks like me having straight hair and my belly tucked in. Love looks like um, getting baptized. Love looks like uh, so that I can be accepted and be part of this family so that you can receive the love. And part of the problem with imprinting is that then you'll take this story or this pattern into your future relationships and then start to fawn into the future relationships. That makes so much sense. Yeah. And I'm noticing there's like your eyes slightly change. So what's, what are you noticing now as I explain that to you? Um, so through the years I've done work in therapy about attachment styles mm -hmm. and we just didn't call it fawning, but that's exactly what I have been doing, what I've had to heal so I can actually have healthy relationships is healing the fawning yeah. and going into my subconscious and changing it and knowing that I should just be loved as I am. Totally. Which is a huge reason why I want to get your story out and start to get other people's stories out is like, these actions that you or these relationships that you might have participated later in life, they start when you're seven. They start when you're seven. They start when we're infants. They start when we're children. And recognizing like, oh, actually nothing's wrong with me. Nothing's wrong with me. I just maybe had some parents that for whatever their reason and wherever they were in their lifetime needed me to get baptized. Right. Yeah. And that's what I did. Eventually, after two weeks, I was mm. like, I'm sick of this. I want to be loved. And I sat them down and had to have a very adult conversation and say, okay, I'm ready to be baptized. Wow. And they, I thought, in my mind, I was like, great, they're going to love me. And instead, it was met with, wow, one week before you turn eight. You know how irresponsible that is? Mm. Now we have to throw together a baptism in a week. Yeah. How, why would you do this to us? Right. And it was met with, um, victim mentality. Yeah. And then my parent, my mom, I remember this so vividly because it was so confusing at the time. 
She looked at me and said, sweetie, you'll understand this when, you, when you're a parent. You get this new baby and you immediately know exactly who they are. You know who they're supposed to be when they grow up. And you know that it is your job as their parent to shape them and mold them into that human. And then she went on to describe me as a perfect Mormon girl who did what she was told and all this stuff. And I was listening to her and I was like, but that's not me. I do the exact opposite of everything you say. Yeah, and you knew that at seven. Yeah, I was like, but this isn't who I am, Mom. Like, that's mm. not me. Wow. And I was just so confused. I was like, but that's not even true. Like, you don't even know who I am. Yeah. Um, and I didn't want to be the person that she was explaining. Yeah. And I knew that at seven, you know, like. I don't like that. Yeah. I don't enjoy that person. That's not me. So in the in the Mormon faith, you get baptized at eight. What's the next kind of milestone within the church? So after that, technically you're supposed to go into young women's at 12. Mm -hmm. And 12 is when really, really a lot of traumas started happening for me personally. Um, so it gets a little messy. You're supposed to go to the temple and do baptisms for the dead, which is so ridiculous. Like, I think, like, if I was dead and some idiot decided to baptize me into their church, I would haunt them. I would yeah. haunt their ass for eternity. I would be so mad. <laughs> so, again, for our listeners, um, I've actually participated when I was, gosh, I must have been 12, about the time that I stopped going to church, um, and I might have stopped going to church and then was still participating in some of the LDS activities um, and had gone and done baptism for the dead. And so what this is, is there's a very large history of um, the Mormons are really good about tracking and genealogy, which is amazing. Like it's actually hands down. <laughs> they're one of the best at tracking your ancestors and knowing our bloodlines and where we come from, which is fascinating if you're into studying your ancestors. But they also have record who's been baptized and who hasn't within that, like, faith. yeah, within the Mormon faith. And so what baptism for the dead is, is where your body steps in for the body for the person that has passed. So you go to the temple and you um, are have someone baptize you in the name for someone else. And um, this is just a very common practice. It's something that's just part of the Mormon faith. And supposedly, because I remember questioning this, I remember being like, wait, so I'm someone else's I'm taking someone else's form, but what if they don't want this? And the answer I heard was, well, they get to choose on the other side. So in the Mormon faith, your spirit goes up into a heaven and you're not technically allowed to go into the highest heaven. Like it's hierarchical. <laughs> and then we just laugh as we say that, right? So, but heaven is hierarchical and you're not allowed to go into the highest heaven unless you have been baptized. That is one of the things you have to do. And so I was told when I started to question this, that, um, they got to have a choice and they could choose to say yes to me being baptized for them, or they could say, no, I choose 
not to take on that baptism and I choose not to go into the highest heaven. So that's just a little side tangent about what baptism for the dead is. And um, so you started partaking in that. I didn't quite yet. Okay. Um, I had like, I was almost, I just turned 12. And I just hadn't had my meeting with my bishop yet. I kept postponing it. It's like, oh, I need to go do something. You know, like I was a dancer as well. I actually did a ton of ballet. Um, my aunt was my teacher. And so that was my safe space from getting away from my family was dance. I moved and I got all of my emotions out. Mm-hmm. And honestly, my aunt pushed so hard for me to go pro. And part of me wishes that I would have because I could have. Mm-hmm. But I ended up not. But that was my safe space. And so I would just be like, oh, I'm going with my aunt to a dance convention on Sunday. Or, you know, sorry, can't go. Mm-hmm. Too bad. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I kept pushing it off. When I was 12, I got my first girlfriend. Mm. And she was amazing, and we had so much fun together. Um, And, you know, for the first time, I felt seen and understood and accepted. Mm. And I remember one time we were at school, and we were, like, holding hands, like you do in the hallway in seventh grade, you know, little kid puppy love. Yeah. And we, like, kissed each other goodbye on our way from class, and we got dragged into the principal's office. Mm. And they sat us down and said, we know you're just doing it for the attention of boys and it needs to stop and we were like or maybe we're doing it because she's hot and I like her yeah like it could be that but they would not take that for an answer and they said if you guys don't stop we're going to tell your families and I was like oh my family can't know was she also 12 she she was was. your grade yeah and would it been okay for her family to know or she was like my family can't know either we have to keep this a secret yeah our families 100% could not know what was happening all right so we but sorry i'm gonna ask like it felt very natural to you oh completely like absolutely felt just like how it felt for me dating my first boyfriend and holding hands in the hallway like the butterflies and the curiosity and the yeah puppy love so cute it was so fun we would get each other little weekly anniversary gifts you know we did all of it we would go on little dates. We just would say that we weren't going on dates, but we were, you know, we were having date night. We were doing so many fun things and it was so, so nice. Yeah. And I knew that I was attracted to both. I do identify as pan. Okay. So I knew I liked both, but I just, I think it was partially the church's role that I just hated the patriarchy so much at such a young age. And also, I just kind of thought dudes were kind of dumb yeah. at that age. I was like, you guys are I mean. so stupid. Like, why would I want that? Right. We dumb. Do, we, do, we do know that mature girls mature quicker. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, I don't want that. I want a girl. And it was so great. Um, but that came crashing down. At one point, we were sitting outside of our school. And, you know, we were just kind of making out, as you do. Mm-hmm. My older sister found us. Oh, no. And I could just, like, see the smile on her face. It was sadistic. And Mm -hmm. I was like, great, here we go. Like, I already know what's going to happen. And she was like, I'm here to get you. I was like, great. And so I said goodbye. And I was like, here we go. And got home. And, you know, in the driveway, she was just like, you're going to get it. And I was like, yeah, of course I am. And I kind of blocked out a lot of this next part just because it was so hurtful. She did tell my parents. There was a lot of screaming. There's a lot of, you're an evil person, you're going straight to hell, we've got to save your soul. How could you do this to me? Why would you be this daughter for me? Mm. What did I do wrong to deserve you? Um, 
and then we just didn't talk for a while, my parents and I. Um, I was not allowed to leave my house. I was on house arrest, basically. Um, I knew that they were meeting with my bishop, and I just didn't know why. Mm -hmm. um, so I just kind of sat there, and I did text her and be like, hey, this is happening. I'm so sorry. I don't know if they're going to tell your parents or not. Um, my sister did tell, and I don't know what's going to happen to me. Um, and then I had my cell phone. Well, I guess it was my mom's at this point. She wouldn't let me use it anymore after that. Um, so for a few weeks, I was just like in house arrest. No cell phone, house arrest, can't talk to your girlfriend, no. in trouble. Yeah, I had nowhere to go. Um, and they knew that I would sneak out my window and so they nailed it shut. Mm. I, if I wanted to take a shower, the bathroom door had to be open because I would also leave the shower running and then hop out of the bathroom window <laughs> and just leave. So I didn't get a door to my bathroom. Um, so I wasn't allowed to go anywhere. I had no privacy. They took all my journals that I had kept for years and I wasn't allowed to write anymore. They went through every single piece of my journal, read everything, and just tore everything apart. Um, what an invasion of privacy. Yeah, yeah, and they kept, that's the thing, and I tried to tell them that. And they're like, you're a kid, you don't get privacy. You're yeah. a child. No privacy. You don't get it. And I was like, um, I should have that, but okay. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I'm a kid. I'm a minor. There's nothing I can do. I have no power here. Exactly. Your parents hold all the power. You don't have anything. Yeah. Um, so then they were like, okay, you have to meet with your bishop. I'm like, great, here we go. So I'm 12, and I sit down with my bishop, and he was probably late 60s. And he sat me down and was asking just terribly invasive questions. He taught me what masturbation was. In that interview? Yes. And then okay. asked me what I did to myself. If I enjoyed it, what felt best? And I was just sitting there and I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, like, why are you asking these yeah. questions? And then they're like, I heard you have a girlfriend. And I was like, mm-hmm. And he was like, great, so tell me about her. What do you guys do? Did you do this and this and this? And he was like, he was teaching me <laughs> how to get another woman off. Right. He was going more into explicit detail yes. than you had actually even done with I, your girlfriend. Exactly. I mean, we right. had done some, but not to, I didn't even know anything about this. So I was yeah. like, what the, what? And he was teaching me this. And you're 12. So I was 12. you're also a minor. And also to point out one of the things that happens, you're alone with him in the room. Yeah. That, and that might have changed Today, I don't know because I'm not a practicing um, of any faith, but when I was a child, we would go alone in the room with an older man. Yep. Yep. So this is happening in a closed room with an older man. Just yes. Just to yes. like bring that into, into like, yes. whoa. Yeah. Talking about masturbation. Sex. Sex girlfriends yep. to a 12 year old yes okay terrible and embarrassing <laughs> and I felt so violated in so many ways especially because then he would ask like what did she do to you that you liked did she do this and he would like ask like what did she do with her hands what she do with her mouth what she do here you know what I mean and just asking how my body reacted to it and just details that aren't necessarily no. important. No, like, why do you need to know that? Mm -hmm. Like, why is that important, you know? And, like, he actually taught me what an orgasm was and asked me if I had one. Because you hadn't known up until that point. No, I had no idea what that was. I mean, I, the only thing I knew was what a period was. Right. But we didn't, we weren't talking about sex yet. I didn't know what was happening. 
Right. And also to point out, like, within some not just LDS faith or Mormon faith, like, let's just say uh, Christian faith, it's a common practice. I don't, I, I think it's changing now um, to not have the quote unquote birds and the bees talk. Uh, a lot of sexual information, a lot of this quote-unquote birds and bees talk doesn't happen. No. And just to say also that just in the area where we're from, it's not even happening in the school systems. It's been taken out of that because it might make us want it, which is the argument here. <laughs> that if, if we talk about it, it means that we're going to turn into these like very <laughs> horny children. You already are, though. We already horny. are. We have hormones raging through our system. <laughs> so it's not talked about on a school level. It's not talked about at homes. It wasn't talked about in my home. No. Um, not for me. My parents told me that if I engaged in sexual intercourse before... Well, first they told me it was only for baby making. It doesn't feel good. It's just to have a baby. And then they told me, but if I did before I was married, I would turn green and have an odor and everyone would know what I did. <laughs> and then isn't there this part of you? <laughs> isn't there this part of you that's like, well, why aren't there more green people yeah, around? <laughs> exactly. I was like, what is happening? Like an alien? Like what? It was so strange. That's what, it was so weird. And then I started this with my girlfriend. I was like, well, I'm not green, so. Right, <laughs> right. So these sorts of conversations um, in predominant religious homes in the past, it might, like I said, it might be changing now, just weren't happening. So they were happening in the bishop's office. Yes, with an old man. That shouldn't be te teaching you these things. Or asking these kinds no. of questions. No. It was so creepy. I hated it. It's creepy. Not to mention, eventually, he got caught and he's in prison for child pornography. Of course. Yeah. Exactly. So. <laughs> so I'm in there with a predator. Thank pretty you, much. Mom and Dad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in here getting asked all sorts of weird questions, learning about orgasms. Nope. I didn't even know it was a thing yet. <laughs> And then where does and then where does this go? This goes to him saying, "Okay, well, you are engaging in the devil's work, and mm. um, we think that your soul was in grave danger. We're sending you to get help, which means conversion therapy." Okay. Whoa. So one, I have chills, <laughs> <laughs> and two, um, this is the part of the story that you told me briefly when I met you. So I had heard like just randomly and through the grapevine that there are organizations, not just the LDS church, but organizations, Christian mostly, that do participate in conversion therapy for the practices of, I don't really know the like politically correct way to say this. So I'm just going to like say it. It's essentially a practice to make you not gay anymore. Yep. That's the that's the theory. Yes. That's the mindset. I'm not saying I agree with that perspective by any means. That's the perspective is that we're going to send you to conversion therapy so you aren't gay. Yeah. That's essentially that's what it is. Okay. So I had heard this existed, but I had never met anyone that had actually experienced this. A lot of us either end up committing suicide. 
Mm. Or we just don't speak about it because it's extremely traumatic. Yeah. Do they, do they like, um, swear you to secrecy? Um, somewhat. I mean, they try to scare you into it as a child. It was just, if you tell anyone, you're going to be seen as crazy. They're going to think you're insane. They're going to think you're disgusting. You're not going to be worthy of a life. You're not going to be worthy of love. You're not worthy of anything. Um, so a lot of it is just fear-based. Um, but, I mean, they didn't have you sign any documents or anything. I was too young to sign anything, so. You're a minor. Yeah. So you, it's all legal through your parents, technically. Exactly. So, I mean, technically, I'm not sworn to secrecy. I can see whatever the hell I want about them. Right. So, again, for people that don't know really what conversion therapy is, do you want to share what that is? Yeah. So, <laughs> I was taken by my parents to a place down in, like, not really southern Utah, but it's in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, they called it conversion camp. Mm. It's not a camp. It is an institution. It looks like an old, run-down um, mental asylum. And they drop you off. Your parents don't stay with you. No. So they take you in. They look at you. My parents looked at me and just said, this needs to work. You're not welcome at home until you're straight. Wow. And then they drop you off with these random people that you don't know. Wow. So as someone who's attracted to both boys and girls, I think it's, that must've been even, I'm imagining that was even more so confusing because there is this part of you that is attracted to boys that in their world is quote unquote straight. Yes. And there's this part of you that's attracted to women. Yep. So they're saying we will only you're only welcome home if you lean into the side, the part of you that wants to be with men. Yes, basically. But they <laughs> they believe that it's a gay demon. That's the best part. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> I'm excited to get into this. <laughs> well, and I mean, again, I'm the sassy one. And so, I mean, so I go in. The first thing I notice is I'm a girl. And I'm in there with all these other hot girls that are my age. And I'm like, you ridiculous morons. Like, thank you. I will have 20 girlfriends by the time I leave here. You're like, you want me to like men, but (laughs) I'm with a bunch of women. Yeah. I was like, "Um, thank you. (laughs) Like, this isn't so bad. Am I in heaven right now? Right. All these hot girls my age. And guess what? The best part is they're attracted to me too. (laughs) We're all attracted to each other. Yeah. And we were all 12 and going through puberty with raging hormones. I'm like, yeah, nothing's going to go wrong here. Yeah. Like, this is going to make me less gay. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I, I highly doubt that. Right. So you get your own room. And the only thing in your room is really just a bed and a desk with nothing on it. And that's it. Did you get to bring anything? Uh, No. Okay. No. Did so you bring just, clothes? You get clothes there, but it's just like jumpsuits. It's literally like a mental asylum. Oh my God. Okay. So this sounds like prison. Yeah. Where you're assigned jumpsuits mm-hmm. and you don't get your own clothes. Nope. You get nothing. You don't get a window in your bedroom. It's I imagine you don't get a razor to shave. Nope. Yeah. You get nothing. And the best part is the door locks from the outside. Holy shit. My mind is blown right now. I <laughs> Like for the readers that are listening, like are your minds blown? <laughs> This is what's happening to you, and you're still 12. I'm 12. Okay. So you're jumped. You're you're in a 
I'm just going to call it a prison. Yeah, it felt like one. You're in conversion camp. Yep. And you don't know what's going to happen. You start off in group therapy. You have group therapy. You have individual therapy. And then you have family therapy. And in group therapy, I go out there for the first time. All these hot girls, you know, we're just sitting there. We're not allowed to touch. We have to be six feet apart. We, um, you know, we introduce ourselves. And then they, the first thing they say is, well, you have a gay demon in you. And we're here to expel it. And me <laughs> being me, I was like, yes, her name is Patricia. Call her by her name. Thank you. <laughs> and they were so mad at that. They got so upset. And they were like, clearly you don't know how things work around here. And, you know, in my mind, I'm like, oh, here we go. Like, yeah, let's start. Like, I am for this. Like, I'm ready to go to war. I'm like, I do not care. You're mm -hmm. not understanding. I don't care. You're like, there's, I don't need to change. Exactly. I don't need to be different. And I don't have a demon. Yeah. I was like, a demon? Like, really? This is the best you guys can do. Mm. That's so original. So, question. This was when you were 12. Do you know now, one, are conversion camps still happening? They are underground. Technically, conversion therapy has been banned, and it's illegal. However, the church is making religious exemptions, even though it's not legal. Because it can be a religious exemption. Yes. And then, is that still the belief? Yeah. From the more, like, in the conversion camps, is that it's a demon, or is it just more of a, like, this is a part of you that can change? So, they go back and forth. Okay. For some friends that have been through those children as well, they say... They like draw a circle. This is your life. And they put a little dot outside the circle. Like, this is gay. <laughs> you don't need to be this. You can be inside your circle. Mm. Um, but at the same time, they'll turn around and, like, have prayer circles around you mm. to expel the gayness. And you're like, what? You to know? So help it's your like, soul. Pray yeah, for so your soul. now it's not, like, a demon. For me, it was. But mm -hmm. now it's a little different. But they still do really weird things to you. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy that I went as a child because as adults, there was a lot more sexual abuse to the gay people. So it's happening for all ages. Yes. This isn't just for children. No, no. And as an adult, you agree to go, but you're just getting traumatized. Yeah. But as children, we don't have a choice, but we're not, at least we're not sexually abused. Right. We have that. Right. Okay. Wow. Whew. I'm just going to breathe. <laughs> Yeah, it's not, it's really not fun. And so we're just sitting there talking and they're talking about the gay demon and how they're going to get rid of it for us. Um, and they, eventually, I'm just making a ruckus. You know, I would like fervently fling my arm around like, God damn it, Patricia, mm. you made me lose control again. Mm -hmm. Like, how dare you? <laughs> and so they put me in my room and they locked me in there. So I just sit there and there's nothing to do in there. You just stare at the wall. Sometimes I'd skip around, do handstands, just chill. You know, there's nothing to do. You're so bored. Yeah. And I don't know how long I was locked in there. Um, they would bring me food. I'd have to eat it in my room because I was making a ruckus. So I was not allowed around the other kids. Um, what about going to the bathroom? That's the thing. So they would take me at designated times, but they would follow me in there, watch me go, and then take me back to my room. Wow gross I hated it mm. and it didn't matter if it was a man or a woman watching me it could be anyone yeah they don't care um and so I would that's how that worked and then I go to individual therapy 
I didn't do a ton of group therapy because I would purposely make a mess. They didn't want you with the other no. people, the other no. women. Mm-hmm. So I would go to individual therapy, and the entire time it was just this man telling me that I was dishonorable, that I was gross, an abomination, that it wasn't natural. I was going to hell. I was evil. Not doing anything helpful. <laughs> just tearing me down the entire time and listening to how absolutely disgusting and abhorrent I was, Mm -hmm. um, showing me things about gay people, you know, like on cameras, like, you know, just like showing me, it wasn't like, we didn't have like laptops or anything this time, I guess. Mm -hmm. So it was like uh, one of those projectors. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And showing me like how horrible it was to be gay and just talking about how gay people deserved death and we didn't deserve life. And, just really horrible things and then showing me straight people's lives. I'm like, look how nice that is. Isn't that so great? It's just such a shame that you have this thing inside of you that won't allow you to be happy. Um, and I just kind of would sit there because I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do in this situation with this strange man that I don't know. Um, and it's not even therapy, you know, it's just them tearing me down. Mm-hmm. And then we would have, you know, therapy with my parents and it was all about them. It was all, they would say things like, how could you do this to us? Yeah. How like, could you come and try to ruin our lives? Why would you do this to me? I don't deserve this. And the therapist being like, do you hear your parents? Do you hear what they're saying? I'm like, yeah, I hear what they're saying. They hate me. And he's like, well, yeah, because you're gay. You need to change. You need to be fully straight. You can't, you know, he's like, you, it's your duty as their daughter to make their lives better. And, so more fawning. Yeah. More pressure to fawn. Exactly. Is what it was, essentially. Exactly. And there's just nothing good about it. Mm-hmm. And I was just, didn't do anything, you know? Um, and then he would go on to say, your daughter is just, she's just not leaning into it. She's she's not changing. No. she It's not working. This yeah. is not working. We need to keep her in here a lot longer because she is just going against everything that we say. And they'd be like, yeah, she does that at home too. She just mm-hmm. doesn't listen. She wants to do what she wants to do. She doesn't know how to conform. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was only a two-week stint, luckily. Then I did have to go home. And it just wasn't a good situation. I was having a really hard time with anorexia. Um, was that before the conversion camp or after? Yes. I had been struggling with that since I was about 10. Okay. My sister just tore me apart yeah. and then, you know, staring at myself in mirrors at dance and body dysmorphia and there's just so much happening and my life was so out of control. I had no say in what was happening to me. I didn't get a choice. And so I turned to food and just not eat or you know, eat just a teeny bit just to keep myself going if I needed to, and then do tons of exercise to get it off. So that became your form of control. Yeah. Basically, my sister would say, if I was pretty, my family would like me. Mm. And so, like, oh, okay, well, I need to do my best to look good. Mm -hmm. I need to be perfect. Um, So I was struggling with that as well. Um, And at church, everybody kind of knew what was going on. They knew you had gone to conversion camp. Yeah. And so I was being shunned there. And I turned to drugs because <laughs> mm. I needed an escape. It was mainly just weed, you know, but... But a way to it. numb. Yeah. You really... I wasn't using it as a way for any medical help. I was using it to escape. Yeah. It so... became your, again, another form of control for you yeah. that allowed you to numb out. Yeah. And who wouldn't 
want to numb out after being told that you have a double and that you need to conform and actually you're the kind of person that can't conform so something must be wrong with you exactly and I would be forced to go see my conversion therapist about three times a week and just get torn to fucking pieces um, so the therapy continued even though you left yeah. the camp. Yeah. So he was my therapist for years, and it was not fun. Um, when I started eighth grade, I my parents got me out of the school I was in just because my girlfriend was there. Hmm. Separation. Yeah. Wanted to yeah. separate you. So I was in a different school. I had to wear uniforms. I did not conform. I was sent home quite often because I would just not wear the uniform. Because you don't conform. No. <laughs> I was like, screw you people. I was coloring my hair crazy colors on purpose, um, doing anything just to not have to be there. And I did meet a, a boy there. And we became friends. And he was like, hey, I'm having like a back-to-school party. You should come out. I have a pool. We're going to swim. And I was like, oh my god, that sounds so fun. I asked my parents, and they were like, yeah, you can totally go. It's a boy. Well, it was a group party. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> so they were like, yeah, totally, you can go. And so uh, my parents dropped me off, and nobody else was there. And he was like, oh, they're just on their way, don't worry. And I was like, okay, cool. So we go in, and it had been, he was like, do you want to jump in the pool? Like, we could just get in and wait for people. And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? And so we jumped in the pool, and I love swimming, so we were just swimming and having fun. And after about 30 minutes, I was like, no one's here. Mm. Something's off. Yeah. And this is another trigger warning. So just for our fans, our fans, <laughs> our <laughs> listeners, we're going to go into some trigger warning here, probably talking about, I'm assuming, some sexual trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we're in the pool, and we're just chilling and talking for a little bit, and I just saw a weird look on his face, and immediately was like, I know what's coming. And he did force himself on me. I tried to get him off. It just wasn't working. He was a lot bigger than me. And you're in water. Yeah. There's nothing I could do. I fought for a very long time. And then eventually I just kind of gave up and tried to disassociate. And was like, it's just, I just need him to finish. He just needs to finish. Which is really common for sexual trauma actually is this like the fight. We go into the fight and then we go into the freeze once we recognize, which is what animals in nature do, right? Like we recognize, well, this means death. Exactly. So I'm going to freeze and disassociate so that I don't have to feel anything. Exactly. And it went on for what felt like Ever. forever. It mm. felt like forever. And then after he had finished, like hopped out of the pool and I just kind of sat there like I didn't. I don't know what to do. And he gave me a look and he smiled and was like, stop it. You, you knew what you were getting yourself into when you agreed to come over. Mm. Um, and then he went into the other room. It was an inside pool. So he went to his other room and started playing video games. And I still had like a couple of hours. And I was like, well, I have no way to call my family. I can't tell them either because of they don't believe in rape. They think that it's a punishment. And I knew that. Mm. So I just kind of, sat there for a minute and I got out and got myself dressed and I just sat in the corner of his house and cried and waited to get picked up um and then my dad came to get me and before I went up the stairs um he stopped me and was like let me know if you ever want to go again and smacked my ass as I went up the stairs and what do you think that was uh he I don't he really, he acted like I wanted it, even though I totally didn't. It was very obvious that I didn't want it. Yeah. 
but he, I don't know, he's, he's just not a good person, I guess. I think, I think part of him knew all along I didn't want it, but the look in his eyes was I was the prey, mm. and he took what he wanted. I think that he knew what he was doing. Yeah. I think he knew, for sure. Yeah. He just doesn't care. Yeah. He's a predator. Why would he care? He takes what he wants. Right. So, yeah, I went upstairs and went home and just didn't say anything because, you know, I'd been having lessons in church about if you are sexually abused at any age, it's your responsibility to stop it. You were there. And if you don't stop it, it's your punishment. Or if, or what I've heard too is like, if you don't stop it, it's because you like it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so I already knew what my parents thought. I had been having these lessons since I was 12, mm-hmm. you know, so I knew what they believed. And, you know, and they also would tell me that if you are sexually abused, your soul turns black and it never goes back to being white and pure. And if you are sexually abused, you don't deserve love. You don't deserve God's love. You don't deserve a husband or a family. You should just go about your life living by yourself, basically. Because you're dirty. You're used. You're damaged goods. Yeah. <sighs> so I imagine you didn't ever tell your parents. Um, eventually I did. You so did. I went back to school and my eating disorder obviously just got even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, I My skin started to turn gray. Mm-hmm. Um, I would wear so much makeup all over my to body cover it up. to make it look like I had skin color but I didn't mm-hmm. um, I started growing like fur on my arms it's not really mm-hmm. like fur but it's like weird fluffy hair yeah this is really normal for people with um, anorexia and bulimia that aren't getting enough calories is yeah. that fuzz yeah so it's gross inside you there were a lot of like really long sleeves just to cover it because it was gross and poofy mm-hmm. but I just couldn't eat and then one day at school I ended up passing out Wow. And my, I was, you know, my parents were called and my health teacher met with them and said she needs help. Um, here's a home for people with eating disorders and she needs to go. So I was sent off to go stay at a different place mm. <laughs> for eating disorders and I was tubed, which means a feeding tube. Yeah. Um, and I ended up having to be on watch because I would just turn it off mm. when they weren't looking. I'm I surprised just... you didn't pull it out, to be I honest. Tried. You it did. Hurt really bad. It does. Yeah. <laughs> I tried. Okay. <laughs> and then I realized it hurt. Mm. And so then I just would turn it off. Um, cause so... it, at that point there was a part of you. I just wanted to go. I that was my question. Like you just didn't want to live anymore. No, I had seen enough of life at this point. It was like, no one fucking cares. Yeah. Literally no one cares about me, so why should I be here? Let me There's die. There's no point to stay. Um, and I was really upset that they were forcing me when I was just going to go out without food, you know, and, and just die. And you knew that at the time. Like, this was a conscious choice of you yes. being like, life is not, this life is not worth it. No. Yeah. I didn't want to be here. Yeah. I was so over it. Um, the best part about that home, though, is I was not allowed to see my conversion therapist. I Yay. got a new therapist. Yay. You got an actual therapist, maybe? <laughs> yeah. Oh, real therapist. And it took a long time for me to open up to her. I'm sure. So long. So I was like, I hadn't had experience with actual therapy. I just had a conversion therapist. And I was like, this is just going to hurt me even more. I'm going to tell you, and you're going to use it against me. And major trust issues, right? Yeah. Like, being vulnerable enough to go to therapy. And I'm a huge fan that everyone needs therapy. 
but it does take a level of vulnerability and trust. It does. It does. And I hadn't had any, I hadn't had, I didn't have any trust from the very beginning. Yeah. I wasn't brought into a safe home. Um, you know, my nervous system has never been regular. So I didn't know how to process anything and I was terrified of therapy. And so it took a long time, but eventually I opened up to her and we started talking and I told her about conversion therapy and some other things. And then the rape came up Mm. and I told her about my rape. And was this when you were still, um, was this outpatient or is this when you were still inpatient? This was still when you're in the space there for 10 months. Wow. Yeah. So 10, Wow. It was a very long time. I was there for the rest of that year. I was there. And almost into the summer. Wow. Okay. So the blessing from that yeah, I had a safe place. <laughs> is that you had a safe place and you actually had a therapist yeah, that it, could handle what was happening in your life and could create a bond. Not a bond, but like facilitate therapy. Exactly. And I loved it. I was so happy there. Okay. So um, so the rape comes up yeah. in therapy. And I finally opened up about it. And she did the right thing. She told she called the cops. And then she told my parents. Um, but after they spoke to him, um, the boy, my parents heard. And they said that they were dropping charges because it was my fault. Mm-hmm. They looked at me and said, you went there. You knew what was going to happen. You didn't do your duty to get him off of you. You were being punished. So everything you were worried about and everything that had gone through your mind played out into reality. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, well, why didn't father just, I didn't want to say anything because I already knew what you guys were going to do. Yeah. And my therapist was pissed. I bet. Yeah. She was absolutely pissed. Um, But, you know, she's like, I can't do anything. You're a minor. You have no rights, basically. You can't fight this. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was like, the only thing I can do is try to help you through the pain. Mm-hmm. Um, so things started getting a little bit better. I was off my tube. I was eating a little bit. I actually went vegan during that time because I would eat meat and just throw it up. Mm-hmm. Like my body just couldn't handle anything yeah. too intense. And so I was vegan for a few years um, while my I guess, intestines or whatever healed. Mm-hmm. I don't really know. Yeah, probably, and your body yeah. healed. and Yeah, and I had a doctor there that I would go see every week as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so once I got out of there, though, um, they stopped me, my parents stopped me from seeing that therapist. Mm-hmm. I still had to go see that doctor, though, which was nice, but they got me back into my conversion therapist. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> so it's like... I was free for 10 months <laughs> and then went right back into it. Oh, and it, it brings up this point of environments yeah. and trauma, the relationship between environments and trauma, where you as a minor really had no control, but it was the, the environment that was actually causing more trauma, mm-hmm. which really, really happens with minors. And we saw this with COVID when we went into lockdown. Like the amount of minors that were actually being abused physically, mentally, emotionally, so many mental health issues skyrocketed for that reason because 
the environment. Mm -hmm. And for so many children, places like school and therapy um, and their friends' houses becomes the safe haven. It does. So in an inter- like kind of an interesting way, it's like your the time that you were working through your um, anorexia became a better environment for you where you could heal. It. Part of me didn't want to heal because I was like, if I don't heal, I get to stay here. Mm. I get to be somewhere where I'm taken care of. I get to be someone where people care about me. And I can be who I want. Exactly. I can like girl, girls or boys. Exactly. I it's could okay. do what I wanted. I could be who I am. Mm. I was accepted, finally. Mm. And so part of me just didn't want to heal. I was like, but then I have to go home. <laughs> You're yeah. going to make me go back Yeah. to this place that I am being so hurt at all the time. Yeah. Which is just like this lack. Also, speaking of control, it's like complete lack of control. You have no control about the environment that you're in really as a child. And just, wow. Like what a difference the environment can make for our healing process. Yeah. I mean, that's why I healed a lot quicker because I wasn't around my parents. We didn't have parental therapy. It was just me. And my doctor there was amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he gave us such great advice and the therapists there they were all so loving um actually when i was there sometimes i just couldn't sleep and there's this man there he was this big huge dude his name was leslie and he was huge and i loved him so much he was like a big teddy bear if i just couldn't sleep he would allow me to come out of my room and just sit with him in the hallway and i would Mm -hmm. just unload every single thing on him and cry it out and Part of me, he was like a father figure, you know, and I wanted so badly to be adopted by him. Mm. (laughs) I can't even lie. And I knew it wasn't possible, but I wanted to go back home with him. I didn't want to go anywhere else um, because I knew it would be like to go back home. Mm -hmm. And he was just like a saving grace. But, you know, then afterwards I lost him and it sucked. Yeah. I finally had someone and then they were all gone. Yeah. Because you had to go back home. Yeah. So you go back home, convert back to the conversion therapist, mm-hmm. and then what? So at the start of, this would be ninth grade. Okay. At the start of ninth grade, I was, um, my conversion therapist was just not happy. He ended up putting me on about 12 different medications on the highest dosages. Wow. And I didn't need them. So the he started medicating you because you weren't conforming? Yes. Okay. Yes. And I mean, I was on so many meds and it was so messed up and it caused some erratic behaviors in me. I'm sure. Yeah. Because you didn't need the meds at all. And so, um, and so after a few months of that, he was just like, wow, every time I had like a reaction to a medication that I didn't need, he would just be like, cool, we're not going to take you off of this one because it's working. You know, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And he'd be like, we're just going to add in a new med. And so he would, because he was not just a therapist, he was also like a psychiatrist. Yeah. I should reiterate that because that's how I was able to get medicated. He was also a psychiatrist. Anyways, so he would prescribe me all these meds. And my parents were like, yeah, she's doing great. No, I wasn't. Um, And so they got up to where I was on 12 different medications. Wow. Yeah. And it just wasn't working. He was like, she's still not straight. And... (laughs) It was exasperating. I was like, you can't turn me straight. Like, mm-hmm. I, that's not going to happen. Yeah. But um, You can't medicate me straight. No, exactly. And so he was like, well, 
there's an experimental therapy happening up at a different hospital and I want you to do it. And he talked to my parents and they were like, yeah, let's do this. And he was like, they're not going to do it for being gay though. So we're going to tell them that she's severely depressed. She has psychosis, which is like hearing voices in your head, mm -hmm. which the only voice I've ever had is my inner monologue. Right. Which we so, all have. Exactly. So I was like, what? And then also he said it was for suicide. And I was like, well, yeah, I was suicidal at that point. So that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But the severe depression, I'm like, well, duh. <laughs> duh. But the psychosis to make it look like I really needed help fast. Yeah. And so that's why he ordered me to go to this therapy, which was ECT, which is electric compulsive therapy. Yeah. So they shock your brain to have a seizure to reboot it. I actually know someone well that used this therapy to work with her own depression and it worked. <laughs> oh, that's cool. And I think it's because she was severely depressed. It wasn't like a doctor saying, hey, let's take this lady, let's take you and this young child who, um, and who's medicated, who doesn't need to be medicated. Um, we're just going to call her psychotic and depressed and do this therapy. Like yeah. you didn't actually, I didn't need it. You didn't need it. Your brain neurologically was not in a state that needed it compared to the woman I do know who was severely depressed and had tried everything and also did it after her brain had finished developing. So our brain right. continues to develop until we're 18. Right. Sometimes even a little older. I mean, she was in her late twenties oh, wow. when she made the conscious decision to do this herself Yeah. after all sorts of medication not working. And this really did help her. Yeah, it's like, I, it probably can help people. Yeah. I just, I really didn't feel like I should have been put in that. You didn't need it. No, it was horrible. And the first few rounds, they did 20 rounds on me. 20? They did 20 rounds. Which is a lot. A ton. So many. So you're going through 20 rounds of essentially, and that, that is literally what's happening. They literally are putting electrodes on the brain and causing um, shock stimulation shock to that part of the brain in hopes that it can rewire differently. Yeah. Yeah. And so the first few rounds, I mean, because I was little, they did have me, I was like 14, you know, almost 15. So they did have me inpatient so they could watch me. Mm -hmm. And I don't blame those doctors at all. They were doing what they were told was necessary for me, even though they didn't know what was going on. And actually, one of the therapists there was incredible. Mm, um, cool. So that was that was the only thing that made it okay. I blame my conversion therapist one hundred and ten percent, and my parents. Yeah, because was so messed up. You shouldn't have been in there. No, but um, but I was in there, and they were like, "Okay, let's do some family therapy," because they knew how suicidal I was, and I was. Mm -hmm. I mean, why would I want to live if this is what my life was like? Yeah. Um, and my parents were just like, we just hope that you make the right choice. Which is such a thing. <laughs> just to pause you there, like, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. And I don't know if it was like, I'm older than you, but I don't know if it was just how our generation, I'm in a different generation as you, but, you know, similar, close, of like, just how our generation was raised. I don't know if it's something that comes from the LDS church specifically, if it's something that comes from Christianity. I heard that 
all the time. And my brothers, they did say, we love you. Mm. Like, we don't want you to die. We love you. Yeah. So I did have them, but my older sister, she flat out told me, you've messed up my life enough and took all the attention away from me. You should die. You don't deserve this. You, it would make my life so much easier if you killed yourself. So this is the, you have one older sister. Yeah. Was she the first adopted? She was. So she definitely has some stuff going on there around oh. that. <laughs> she won't admit it, but yeah, she does. So. She, does. And she, she always hated that I had a relationship with my birth mother too. Because she doesn't. Um, she could. She just refuses okay. is the thing. And so she hated that I seeked mine out. And she just wanted to make my life was miserable. She really picked on me a lot. Yeah. So when you're going through this ECT, she's telling you, like, Tell I hope yourself. this kills you. Mm-hmm. I hope this is it for you. Yeah. She did not want me to continue on. And then eventually one of my cousins actually came to see me. And I was planning on saying goodbye to him because we were super close. And I love him like you cannot believe and I was planning on just saying my goodbye Mm -hmm. but instead I told him I dumped on him what was happening and he looked at me and goes well fuck them (laughs) he was like honey look at me and I was like I want you just try to live out of spite go have a great life out of spite and prove them all wrong and for whatever reason that spoke to me Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like it got my my fighting side out again and I was like I don't want to live but you know what yeah screw these people you're going to treat me like this? I'm going to go off and have the best life you've ever seen, and it's going to be because of me, not because of you. Or what you've, like, what I've, what you've essentially done to me, and I, I try really hard not to use, like, victim-y language, but essentially you had no control of your life and what was happening to you. Exactly. Like, you really didn't. You really no. were a victim. I was. I truly was. And so this beautiful cousin, it's like, this is your turning. This was your turning it point. It was. I was like, you know what? yeah screw you people like Mm -hmm. I'm gonna go off and live exactly how I want to I'm gonna make a name for myself I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do amazing things with my life and not let any of that credit fall to you Mm, beautiful so Um, I kept going through these rounds um eventually I was out of um inpatient I was outpatient and I had a tutor come to teach me school but Everything she would teach me by the next week, I would have forgotten it. Because your brain's fried. I didn't even know what what a continent was. I didn't know what planet I was on. Your brain got fried. Yeah. I had no clue what was happening. Um, And then after the last round I had, I do... It took a few years for my memories to come back. Mm. But they did. All Like they all... all Your brain healed. Yeah. The doctors were like, hey, it might take a few years, but your memories will be coming back, I promise. And Mm. I was like, okay, good. So it did take a few years, but then they came back, and I remembered after my last one, sitting there with those doctors, and they were telling my parents, listen, we can't do more rounds on her, or she will be left as a vegetable. Yeah. Um, you'll be caught taking care of her for the rest of her life, and she won't have a life. It will fry her brain too yeah. much. And my parents flat out said, that's okay. Wow. And I was like, looking at them, I was like, this bitch said what? Yeah, the, like, the, the preferences for you to be a straight vegetable. Yeah, I can almost, like, you would rather have me be a vegetable than just, like, kind of gay? Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Really? And so then after, like, they were like, okay, well, we need to take, like, two weeks. You guys need to actually think about this because we really don't feel comfortable doing another round. So we went and talked to my therapist, conversion therapist. I hate calling him that because I don't feel like he is one. Yeah. 
And we went and talked to him, and he was like, well, you know, it's better. Her soul will be saved, right? Mm. And that is when I was like, I was like, I'm straight. <laughs> I'm straight. Okay. Straight as an arrow. It works. Yep, it Quote. works, guys. What Unquote. a miracle. You saved my soul. Oh, my God. Girls are gross. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Actually, it's really smart of you. Yeah. Going back to, like, you know, quote-unquote resiliency. I did what I had to do. You did what you had to do to survive. Yeah. So I was like, yep, it's a success story. I'm straight. Oh, my God. God <laughs> Over- is good. Overnight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so weird. I just needed my brain to heal a little bit. <laughs> heal I'm slash straight. <laughs> get fried so yeah. I have no short-term memory. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I'm straight as can be, you guys. So at this point in the interview, this is where Athena goes on to continue her story about growing up, meeting her now ex-husband, and having two children. She also connects with her birth father and goes through quite a process with that. So that will be in a future podcast, and I can definitely let you know when Athena is speaking again. But for now, I just really wanted to leave it to her story about her huge experience and everything she faced growing up and really what she had to endure to be in her home and be accepted and everything she went through from the conversion camp to the therapy to the anorexia. It's so, so much. So we're going to fast forward and where we pick back up is essentially at the beginning of COVID. And when COVID hit, a lot of us really were forced, whether we liked it or not, to slow down. But for Athena, this is where she actually started to have an opportunity to heal. And um, it's really beautiful how she used COVID as a time to start to work through her trauma. So let's dive into that part of the story. It's also forced me to slow down. And that's where my healing began. Because I was like, well, I have nothing else to do. (laughs) And I started thinking really deeply. I got a therapist and I met someone who like catapulted me into healing he was like a total catalyst Mm -hmm. and I'm it was messy (laughs) so messy but so good um he catapulted me into yoga Mm -hmm. and I started using yoga to heal my nervous system and my glandular system and my cardiovascular systems and using meditation to quiet my mind and heal and I started everything was like blown open when I first started saying things, and I think I had about five panic attacks a day just from trying to heal from everything. It was like I was drowning. Um, I, I hike all the time yeah. to get outside. Be in nature. Yep. It's the number one thing for me, too. Just once a week, no matter what my week is like or how busy I am, I make sure I'm in nature. Exactly. That's what I was doing. I was hiking 2020 to 2021 three times a week. Amazing. So... Um, so I would take more days off, you know, I was like, you know what, I need this, I need yeah. heal. And yeah. so that's been my most 
important thing currently is just healing and it's made living at my house bearable <laughs> right um i met my spiritual yoga teacher i go to class weekly i'm in yoga teacher training mm -hmm. um the work i've done in the past probably three four years has been just absolutely life-changing and from one of the things that you have told me a lot of these practices and of course i bring this up being a somatic practitioner the things you're doing with your yoga teacher are somatic practices yes you're diving into what's stored in the body the body's response and that's catapulted you into the most healing it sounds like it has um every single yoga kriya that we do is to detoxify your body yeah. and heal emotions um so i mean there's so many times i can't even count how many times i'm in class and i'm just sitting there sobbing while mm -hmm. trying to do it or sometimes even i would start laughing like mm -hmm. i hadn't felt joy for so long that i would be so blissed out that i would just laugh hysterically for no reason yeah and he would just sit there and smile at me and oh. hold space for me no matter what if i'm sobbing he just sends me so much love energetically and helps me work through everything yeah um, I started a practice at home. I do it every single day and it's amazing. Like I didn't know what calm was, you know, all I've known was chaos. Right. And then our body gets addicted to that chaos and then we create yep. situations where we seek that chaos so that we can receive it. Cause that's what our exactly. mind is used to. Exactly. So wow. now I'm able to just, when I'm in a situation where it's hard and my family is just driving me insane and, you know, abusing me. I'm able to not disassociate or fawn. I just sit there and I place my boundaries. They Good. hate them, but I don't really care. Yeah. And you're in, in, and in doing that, you're working on increasing your emotional intelligence. Exactly. Right? You're learning how to regulate your nervous system in stressful situations, which increases our own window of tolerance and capacity. Exactly. Um, hmm, so much. Um, I do want to wrap it up. We're almost at two hours, which is <laughs> I love. That's really one of the points of this podcast is that it's just open and free conversation and storytelling. I would like to know for people listening, if there's anything like looking back now, like so much trauma, right? Physical trauma, emotional trauma, birth trauma, sexual trauma, like what do you think the one thing is that you're still alive? Like you created, you had resilience. What do you think that was that allowed you to have that resilience and continue to choose to live? Honestly, I've thought about that a lot because I keep getting asked that. Um, I've been told I was like an anomaly because I would still, I didn't really... And conform. Yeah. <laughs> I still, for the most part, did what I wanted. Um, I feel like that's just my roots. It's mm -hmm. like I was able to separate. I was able to learn how to separate myself from my trauma and see that, like, yeah, did I deserve this trauma? No. Should I have had to be, should I have to be, should I have to be as resilient as I am? No. <laughs> I don't deserve that. I shouldn't have done that. However, I've been able to, like, form it into, like, a book. And I'm like, that's a chapter of, like, this is their problems, right? And like sort out who I am throughout the trauma and like separate it and realize that I'm not my trauma. Mm -hmm. I am not what happened to me. Yeah, that's a part of my story, but it's not who I am. Yeah. 
Um, and once I separated that, that was a game changer to be able to really work on me and become more authentic and live how it felt the very best to me. I was able to find a soul's purpose, a calling, and dive into that head first. And that's what did I'm not trauma. I'm not my trauma. I'm not what happened to me. Yeah. It's just a story. I love that. I love that so much. It's this concept of like, we have this higher self, this soul self. And the soul self is intelligence and love and light. And that's a separate self from what's happening in our lives. And all of us have the ability to tap into that soul self if we're willing. If we're willing, that's the biggest part. And it's hard to be willing when we're stuck in trauma. And I think like when we're living the trauma, it's so hard. So for everyone out there listening, it's like that it's experiencing hardship or experiencing trauma or just starting your journey or of healing or deep in your healing journey, just recognizing you aren't your trauma. That's so well said. Exactly. But also recognizing healing isn't pretty. <laughs> healing isn't pretty. No, it's I not had, linear. No, I had so many panic attacks daily and people were like shoving love and light down my throat. That's mm-hmm. bullshit. Mm-hmm. That is bullshit. Don't listen to that. Yeah. It's wait. ugly. Healing is so ugly, but it's so important. It's hard. It's, it's not worth it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Here I am stepping into like what I really do feel like is going to be my most prosperous year. Mm. So, I mean, you just, you got to do the hard work. You got to do the hard work. You got to go into the shadows. You have to go into the trauma. You do. You do. If you're not, you're just going to be swimming in the shallows, which isn't where anything good happens. Mm. The best happens when you dive deep, even though it hurts. Yeah. And putting the correct support systems in place so that you can dive deep. Like, you've had therapy, right? I have. Like, just to highlight the importance of having appropriate support systems in place. I've had therapy. I have spiritual teachers. I have spiritual friends. I, You have to have that. And you can totally have that anywhere you are. We can get that. Yeah, we can. We can. Gosh, awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It feels good to share it. (laughs) Yeah. I I know that you're working on writing a book and um, you've asked me to actually not share your information just for personal reasons. And so I'm going to refrain from doing that. So for the listeners out there that are interested in connecting with you, it's not out of... um, because I don't want to share your information. It's it's really out of a way to protect it's out of you. Protection for my kids mainly. Yeah, you've asked to stay protected, so I'm gonna honor that. And um, yeah, thank you. All right, everyone, that is a wrap. There goes our first interview for this podcast, and I really, really appreciate you for turning it, tuning in. I've loved having you here. I would love to know what you think of today's podcast. And if you do want to get a hold of Athena, she did say that if you let me know and I kind of filter the information, she is happy to connect with you depending on who you are and why you'd like to connect. So please let me know if that's something you'd like to do. 
Please continue to stay up to date by following me through Spotify. You can find me on my website at leishanelson.com. You can find me on Instagram as Leisha Nelson and as well as Facebook. So please stay connected and I'll see you in my next podcast. <laughs>